Yes, it's that time of year again. Of course, we love WKRP all year long, but especially now as we get closer to Thanksgiving and recall that incredibly funny episode. Did you know we have five different WKRP designs, including three different Turkey Drop-inspired ones? Simply go to CincyShirts.com and type WKRP into the search bar and have a look. Use the promo code at the end of this episode to save 20% on your entire order online or in-store. Now, on with the show. WKRP in Cincinnati. This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 96. Today on our show, Regina Carswell Russo. Part of the reason why I know that they wanted me to do it, because I was a dogged reporter. Like, I could ask the good questions. Then it occurred to me, but not till very down the road, that it's just really provocative and salacious to send a black woman into the lion's den of white supremacist men. Regina is probably best known for her time at Fox 19 as part of their news team. She tells us how a girl from Detroit who loved radio wound up being a TV reporter and eventually anchor. What it's like to come to a big market and become part of a brand new news operation, some of the more memorable and sometimes controversial stories she covered, and why she decided to leave the news business altogether and start her own business. If you've been liking the podcast, you can support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com. Chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for the special promo code for 20% off your Cincy Shirts or Old School Shirts purchases at the end of the episode. Now let's talk to Regina Carswell Russo. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I, Cincinnati. In a while, I'm at CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati. So, so most people know you from Fox 19. Right? Yeah. But uh, are you from Cincinnati? Actually, I'm not. I grew up in Detroit. I moved to Cincinnati in 1996. And like a lot of people who move here in the beginning, middle of their careers in broadcasting, you think that you're going to be here for a contract. And then, oh, I'll sign another contract, then another contract. And I fell in love, literally, figuratively, uh, with Cincinnati. And I uh, met my now husband. And I just created my life here. And when you were growing up in Detroit, did you get notions of being a journalist? Is that a lifelong thing? It's going to sound corny and a little cliche, but yes. I uh, I used to watch the Phil Donahue show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. The caller there. Nice. Yeah. And I was young, so I didn't really know like all the themes and all what they were talking about. But I was captivated by the theater of it. I loved that he could walk up and down the aisle in between all these people and put a microphone in their face. And they would just tell their life. And he would ask these questions and seem so interested and curious and get people to share. And my mom was a teacher, and so she made us read the newspaper. And she made us watch the news. And funny, um, Dana Eubanks used to work here at Local 12. She's not a whole... Well, I don't know what the difference in age. She's not much older, but she used to work in since in Detroit when I was coming up. So when I was in college, I would see her working with Bill Bonds 
in Detroit. And then years later, didn't know that I would actually be working in the same market with her when she was here in Cincinnati. So I did. I actually knew I wanted to be, didn't know the theme yeah. last year. I mean, now we call it storytelling, but I knew in some shape or form, that's what I wanted to do. So not necessarily news reporting, but more like, like what Donahue was doing with getting... Well... Either one, right? I was just captivated by the whole notion of telling other people's stories and getting people to talk and asking questions. And so uh, I was in drama and uh, debate in high school. And when I went to Purdue, I knew that I was singularly focused. A lot of times when people go to college to their benefit, they're kind of an open book. Like, I think I want to do this, or I have an interest in this. And then they explore all kinds of things. But I was myopic. I knew what I wanted to do. Also, we didn't have any money. So I knew what I had to do had to be in a very short amount of time, right? Is I had four years to get this degree, to pay for this degree. And no Van Wilder. <laughs> and get it done. And so I worked in public radio while I was there, and I just ate, slept, and drank the business. And then I graduated from Purdue and couldn't get a job for two years. I worked for a commissioner, Alberta Tinsley Williams. I was like her chief of staff while I was pounding the pavement, sitting in my little raggedy cassette tape, making more cassette tapes and sending out my little demo to any radio station. At that time, I was in love with radio. And, uh, and then I finally got my first job at a radio station, black owned radio station in Detroit about a year and a half, almost two years later. What station was that? It was WQBH. And what's interesting about WQBH is WQBH is so funny how things happen in your life and they foreshadow your life. Happened to be owned by a black woman and her name was Martha Jean Steinberg. And uh, she got her start in radio at WDIA in Memphis around the time of Elvis. And she was of those disc jockeys and um, personalities that were bigger than life. At the time, that's when the plants and the, the car plants and factories were really big in Detroit. And when she was coming up on the radio in Detroit, she would know. This is how she got to be big. She, you know, played the blues and she had this real kind of like real velvety voice and she would talk to everyone about their relationships and how to, you know, keep the family together and all of this stuff. Well, she would get wind of when the workers, the factory workers would get extra pay. They would get a little extra bonus. And so she, she would go on the radio and she would say, ladies, you don't know, but I know that your man got a bonus at the factory today. So check his pockets when he comes home. And so the women would be like, hand it over. (laughs) And it just created this big thing because all the men would be on the uproar and they'd be all upset because now they got to give the money to the ladies and to the wives and all that stuff. And she would just do that. She would just be really real. And she had this relationship. She was trying to think of a who who is like that today that is like a big influencer 
right? That when she spoke, people listened and they acted. Oprah. Yeah. So she was like my <laughs> Oprah. She was really like my Oprah. <laughs> yeah. She ended up becoming a minister and she started this church. And uh, so she did less of the blues and she became this inspirational speaker. And in the middle of the day, from 12 to 1, it was called Inspiration Time. And she would play uh, Rance Allen. She would play Reverend James Cleveland. That's when I found out about Charles Fold. Charles Fold was a wonderful, iconic char- um, gospel singer here in Cincinnati. He sang at my wedding. He died a few years ago, and he has a group called Charles Fold and the Charles Fold Singers. And they used to sing with Lincoln Heights Missionary Baptist Church. Iconic. Mm-hmm. Well, Charles Fold used to sing with Reverend James Cleveland, which we all know is an iconic gospel singer. And that was around the time that she came up and she would play this music. Going a little off strip, but during inspiration time, when you worked at WQBH, you could not move. The phones had to be shut off. You couldn't walk past her while she was on air. Like literally the whole radio station had to be utterly silenced because she was in the zone and she knew when anything was happening. She, and she would talk to people, she'd play this inspiration song and she would talk about themes and she'd make people feel fantastic, kind of like Oprah Super Soul Sunday. But what she also taught me when I worked there was that was the beginning and the roots of my work ethic, right? She said that you're only as good as your worst day taught me that it doesn't matter how good you are when the mics are working well and everyone's doing their job well and the lighting is fantastic. You're only as good as your worst day. How are you when you have technical difficulties, when someone doesn't show up, when things are going badly? How good are you then? That is the test and that is the make of how much you are a professional. Whenever we would do a story, and because she had so much connections with the community, we would be able to talk to the police chief before some of the other bigger stations or anything, right? And we would be high-fiving each other. We got the story. We broke the story. They talked to Martha Jean before anyone else. And she would walk past us, and she's like, what are we going to do tomorrow? That happened. That's fine. Let's keep it moving. We have more work to do and not to really pat ourselves on the back. Like right now, people are always patting themselves on the back on TV. Good story. Yeah. Good this. Good this. Great we job. Great job. That's your job. You're supposed to do that. What are we going to do tomorrow? How are we going to bring the news? How are we going to bring the uh, uh, what's happening to the people? And I think probably the biggest thing that she showed me, which really helped me in my career moving on, was that you are of service. You're a servant to the public. When you are in charge of being a scribe, of collecting information of what happened and telling the people, and you have a duty and a responsibility to give back to the community in a very big way. And that served me really well when I went on to work at other radio stations and television stations, and then it really helped cement me here because it allowed me to create a home and realize that I'm not just a talking head. I'm giving information. I'm empowering people. I have a really big responsibility in the work that I do, what I say, and how it impacts everyone. So working for her, she was hard. She was mean. Uh, <laughs> like, the worst boss you could ever have. But it was, <laughs> I mean, literally. I mean, she's intimidating and just, ugh. 
But like literally, what's the Devil Wears Prada? She was Miranda. Yeah. Right? She was Miranda and Oprah. How is that possible? But that's how she was. Yeah. And uh, and iconic in all ways. She really set the foundation for me. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Sounds like she was inspiring. She was. Sure. She was. In her own little she, way. In her way, yeah. She she really was. She really was. And what happened to the radio station? Well, she eventually, later on, she passed away, and then they sold the radio station. I think it's a talk station now. I don't think it's still operating. It was in the Penobscot building downtown, right in the middle of the heart of downtown. Wow. So what time yeah. frame is this? Uh, she, her, it was, um, she was, inspiration time was from 12 to 1. And then we had a news talk after that, which is what I helped with. And then after that, it was Jay Blues Man Butler who played <laughs> blues. <laughs> That's when I discovered Etta James and and all the great blues greats. So, yeah. So how long were you there? I only worked there for two years. Oh. And I left because she uh, was about to fire me. She, I didn't know at the time. Uh, she realized that I had develop great skills and it was time for me to go and move on and if she hadn't done what she did i would have stayed longer than i should have so she was like you know i think you're done here i think you're good uh you've got about i don't know she gave me three weeks you're gonna have to find some place else to work we need some new blood we need some new whatever and i was a kid right i was just out of college and i was devastated i was crying and what am i gonna do i don't have another job blah 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 and it made me hustle to get a tape together and send it out and push it out and push it out and push it out. And I didn't realize she was literally pushing me out of the nest. And so I eventually got a job at uh, Wood Radio in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which was the complete opposite of WQBH, Black-owned radio station. Wood Radio was one of the most conservative white radio stations in Western Michigan. It was a little bit like WLW, like, but on steroids. And, uh, <laughs> and I worked there. Completely different, boring Grand Rapids, just bleh. But, um, but that was another level of experience because then I was able to really learn how to write for radio. I tell people this now that when I would write for radio at W, at Wood, uh, David Isaacs was my, um, news director. He's a funny guy. And he, I had electric typewriters. I don't know if anybody remembers electric typewriters, but (laughs) I had electric typewriters. And I would try to write these stories for radio, and radio has to be super, 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 super tight. And I would write the stories, and he would say, read it to me, and I'd read it to him, and he'd rip it out of my uh, typewriter. He says, write it again. I need it to be shorter. And he would just keep ripping it out, ripping it out, ripping it out, ripping it out. And so I'd have to keep writing over and over and over and over and over again until you could feel what 20 seconds was like you could feel what 30 seconds was like you could feel what 10 seconds was like and it was like working a muscle and i had to do it over and over and over again and a lot of people coming up now they don't realize that kind of stuff that you have to do when we used to actually use a phone that had a cord on it and yeah. there was a piece of paper that had all of the uh the the 
police stations and fire stations, and you would call each one first thing in the morning. Anything happen overnight? Anything happen overnight? Anything happen overnight? Every single day. That's how we got our news because we didn't have like the internet, right? Scanners or anything? You did. You did have to listen to to police scanners, but if someone wasn't did something miss something on the scanner? I mean, that's how you also built the relationships with all of those different municipalities and all of those precincts because people would know that you would call every day and you get to know the person who was on there. And so if something would happen and maybe it missed the scanner, they would say, you might want to check this out or this happened or this happened. Huh. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, like Scooby-Doo news. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Bit of a culture shock going from Detroit to Grand Rapids. It was a, well, not really because I went to Purdue. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it was more of, and I don't know if people some some people will be able to understand that it was more of a culture shock working at WQBH because even though I lived in Detroit, I went to a Catholic school and it was all different types of nationalities at that school. Right. So I kind of grew up with that kind of lens. And then I went to Purdue, which is predominantly white. I mean, literally, I don't think it was even in double digits, the percentage of African-American students that was there. And that was my world for four years. So it was more of a culture shock going to WQBH when I was surrounded by Shonuf African-American culture at its core. Right. And, um, it opened my eyes to the responsibilities that we have. I don't even know if you guys remember. I'm trying to think if it happened right before I left or before I left the Malice Green incident in Detroit where this, uh, it was post Rodney King and this African American man was beat up terribly by the police. That was one of the most horrific stories I had ever covered and it was significant for me because when the police department wanted to talk about it they went to a place that they felt that they could get their story told and they went to Martha Jean Steinberg they went to the black radio station to talk to the community and that was really eye-opening to me to to know that black radio black newspapers black media has a purpose it has a role, a significant role in the community. And those that still champion for that still have it going strong. Like you have the Buzz, you have um, the Cincinnati Herald. They're, it's, they're, they're necessary entities and they are the cornerstone for the African-American community and need to be supported. Wow. Mm-hmm. Totally. So, so in uh, Detroit, was this more, you know, before, you know, the, the, the downturn or in the, in the middle like, you know, when, when everything, like, the... Well, you had to understand, I was in, that was in the, I, gr- I graduated from college in 90. Okay. So, it was in the 90s, and, like, I, I wouldn't even be able to tell you, right? I'm, like, trying to get my grind on, trying to work in radio, my first radio job. But also, when I was working in radio, because you know you don't make any money, I bartended and was a waitress at St. Andrew's Hall. I have such a crazy life. St. Andrew's. St. <laughs> wow. Andrew's Hall, people know, is the place where Eminem got famous. And so... Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm way before that. Uh, okay, really? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Were you from Detroit? No. Um, I went to college in Bowling Green. Okay, okay. Cleveland. 
So uh, I saw some concert at San Andreas Hall. Then you know it well. Kind of yeah. grimy, yeah, yeah. dark, right all downtown, of that. Yes. A couple blocks from the GM. That's right. Building. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And so I bartended there, and I part. I haven't famous. I partied with Depeche Mode when Depeche Mode was really hot, and they were playing that Pine Knob. And they came there back down go. to San Andreas Hall and partied for the after party. Nice. So, uh, so that was where I was. <laughs> Did you do the personal Jesus? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And my husband's from Cleveland. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What part? He's from Brexville. There you go. Mm-hmm. Friends from Brexville. Yeah. Yep. That's on the south side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> yeah. It's weird, because growing up in Cleveland, I used to listen to CKLW. CKLW, yeah, yes. Yeah, it was a rock station. Okay, that's right. Now, in the 70s. Dick Purton, wasn't he on, I can't remember, yeah. he was one of the DJs there, but yeah. yes. Gary so, Burbank was a DJ there. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's so, right. I had no one to listen to him as a kid, and then wound up working for him <laughs> like, 20 years later. <laughs> that's crazy. Well, yeah, well, in Detroit, it's right right there on, at Canada, so you could get the Canadian stations. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, yeah, CKLW. Oh, bringing back memories. Yeah, <laughs> and of course the, the WGR, the big uh, news station. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah. exactly. Voice of the Great Lakes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that one well as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Heck yeah. So what's after Grand Rapids? Oh, so then after Grand Rapids, uh, when I was in Grand Rapids, I made friends with uh, a, a beautiful soul, his name is Steve Osinsami. Steve Osinsami is now the lead reporter, one of the lead reporters for ABC News. And he was working in TV in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we became friends. And he said, you know, you should do TV. And I was like, mm, you know, I didn't feel like I had to look for TV. And I liked radio. I liked the mystery of radio. And uh, he said, no, 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 you should really think about it. So I started, I worked two jobs. I was working in radio for a while, and then I worked in radio and in television. I was an overnight producer for one of the TV stations so that I could be in the building and learn the insides of television and get a tape together and send it out just to see. So I would sleep twice a day. I would sleep like mid-early morning. Um, I would sleep, I would work overnight for the, the, to produce the overnight show, come home early morning, sleep, get up, work uh, afternoon for the television station, go to sleep late evening, get up and work overnight for a while. And I finally got a tape together and, uh, I got an agent, sent it to the big Lansing, Michigan. And, uh, I got, uh, <laughs> I got hired by Sherry Gretsch, who's a news director, young phenom at, um, the station. What was that station? I can't remember, but it was in WILX. Sherry Gretsch is now the vice president of news uh, at Fox News Station, Fox News Cable. <laughs> so she has completely ascended that oh, ladder. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And so I worked in radio and TV for her for about a year, year and a half, and sent a tape out just to see where it would go. And then I came to Cincinnati, and I didn't even really know where Cincinnati was. And I came to Cincinnati, and I loved it. I loved that there was a news director, Carla Stanley, that really took a chance on me. And, um, and the rest is history. Wow. So your, so your first TV job's in Cincinnati? First TV job was in Lansing. Or Lansing, okay. Mm-hmm. So what number were they as far as... God, 100-something. Like, yeah, I was going to mm-hmm. say. So bigger than Grand Rapids? Or no? No, smaller. That's what I thought. Yeah, okay. smaller than Grand Rapids. Okay. Yeah, because Grand Rapids was, I don't know, it was in like the 50s Okay. And for TV. Um, and then 
smaller Lansing. But remember, in Grand Rapids, primarily, I was on the radio yeah. and doing producing for TV. So I wasn't on air in Grand Rapids and for TV. So how long were you in Lansing? Uh, for a year and a half. And did they did, did Cincinnati find you, or did you find Cincinnati? Well, my, I had an agent by that time. Oh, okay. And, yeah, and he sent it out. And then, I see. And so they kind of found me. I see. Mm-hmm. So TV was a natural fit. It became a natural I think that'd be scary. Well, I mean, that adds a whole new element that, you know, you weren't used to. Yeah, but when you're young, right, you're young and you're not aware. Like, you're not aware of your looks. You're not aware of uh, consequence, right? Um, then it's not so scary. When you are literally in your zone, right, of just telling a story, it's very, very different. What's really interesting for the longest time, though, everyone uh, will say that they'd rather be an anchor than a reporter, just because reporter is just, it just hurts, right? You got to be out in cold and yeah. the rain, you got to just walk everywhere, yeah. just uncomfortable, right? And in the plushy palace of the, you know, an, a newsroom with an anchor desk, it just seems so much better. But I was always a better reporter street reporter then I was an anchor and I was the bomb anchor I'm not gonna tell I'm not gonna lie I was the bomb right <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I was always better reporting because it felt electric and fresh and new and not uh staged right like yeah. I could just tell my story I could just tell you I can just tell you what happened just now like this guy just said this to me this just occurred and it was an adrenaline rush for me so I really had a I had it was natural for me to actually just tell that story that way than it was to sit in a desk and look at an inanimate, ob- uh, inanimate object and be able to emote and be able to convey yeah. something. You just read the teleprompter. I mean, you have to learn how to be natural when you are in an, you know, a sterile situation like that. And that takes a lot of work to do. So you came here as a reporter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And one of my first uh, um, stories was the Com Air crash that oh, happened. Yeah. And we had to drive actually back to Michigan to cover that, right? And then when uh, the Kehoe brothers, do you remember that? The shootout of the Kehoe brothers in Wilmington, Ohio, they shot these uh, um, sheriffs, shot at the sheriffs after they were being stopped. That story. These brothers were part of the white supremacist group, and they were out west, and they had murdered this family. And they were coming through Ohio because they had an affiliation with the white supremacist group here, the Aryan Nation group here. And so uh, we, it's so funny, we like... Sounds hilarious. Oh, well, I mean... (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's just like, we, we, we discovered that they were, had been... The affiliation for the longest time, I never. We no one really knew how our assignment editor. He was a phenom as well. I mean, he just knew everything. How he got the connection with this white supremacist group until years later, we're like, well, maybe he knew too. Maybe he knew oh. too much. Too much. How did he know? Right. And so um, we found that that there was a connection with them. They were on the run and was caught on tape by the police cruiser. They had got stopped for, you know, people people who kill people always get stopped because of a, a busted taillight or yeah. something. Do you know what I mean? And so they got out and the brothers got out and they were like, you know, need to see your license. And they're like, you know, just don't, we don't want to cause any trouble. We don't want to cause any problems. And then one of the Kehoe brothers pulled out a gun and started shooting towards the sheriffs. And uh, the, the sheriffs weren't hurt 
luckily, and they got in the car and they ran away. And so we were uh, charged with finding out what the connection was, was with this white supremacist group that was in Wilmington, Ohio. And so the news director wanted me to go there because we found out who the the grand wizard or the, 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 the lead dude, right? Yeah. Talked to him. So they set up this interview. I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Listen, again, this was like when I was young and stupid and like, I'm a reporter. I'm I'm a dogged reporter. Yeah. I'll I'll you know. You I'll, went to Purdue. You got this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll get this Say story. The first wizard you get in contact with. You get coffee all the time with the local. So, but that's but that's how my lens, right? Yeah. Like literally, if having information and another level of understanding. I would have done things, probably would have done things differently. Because part of the reason why I know that they wanted me to do it, because I was a dogged reporter. Like, I could ask the good questions. I could do. But then it occurred to me, but not till very down the road, that it's just really provocative and salacious to send a black woman into the lion's den of white supremacist men, right? Like, how does optically, how does that look? That would bring anybody to the TV station, right? So I think that if I, I wouldn't have done that story today, because I don't think I would have been used that way, mm-hmm. right? I didn't feel like I was being used then. I felt like they were giving me the toughest story because I was the toughest reporter. But with years of living, I, I would have seen it with curtain. different... Yeah, yeah, I would have seen from different eyes. Hmm. But so anyway... So you got an interview with him? Mm-hmm. I went there with the photographer. We went all the way to Wilmington. and um, But here's the funny thing. So we go to the address... And we go up behind this, go behind the stairs because it's in the back. You have to go up in the back and one of these rickety stairs. And we knock on the door and we see the curtain that pulled where the window was and a guy look out. And then he, you know, he didn't open the door. Kept knocking, wouldn't open the door. Kept knocking, wouldn't open the door. Then we have to drive to find a payphone. Everybody knows what a payphone is, right? <laughs> we have to find a payphone and call him. And and I was like, hi, you know, we talked to you earlier. I was there just a second ago. We're still doing this interview. And he said, oh, that was you. <laughs> he didn't realize I was black when we set up this interview um, at the station, which, again, Knowing that, as a, with a woman of my of understanding now, I would have asked those questions then. I wouldn't have blindly gone into a situation that could have escalated quite quickly. Yeah. You know? And literally, those times I felt are different than they are now, too, because things are just crazy now. So we went back around, and we walked up the stairs, and he opened the door, and he stood in front of the door, and he says, well, you can't come in. I'll do the interview, but you can't come in. And I was like, well, we were here, whatever. And he pointed to a sign behind him. And on the sign, it was the list of rules. He says, you can't come here because we have rules here. And it was uh, no swearing, no tobacco, no no Jews, and no the N-word. Right? Jeez. Whoa. And, uh, and, and then he pulled his... Sh- jacket back around his waist to show that he had a gun in a holster in his belt. So I was like, yeah, we're not going to, we're not going to go in today. And I said, so my photographer's behind me. He's like, okay, let's go. And I was like, well, can we just do it downstairs? So we walked downstairs again, 
reporters, if they really are committed to their craft, are like physicians. They have an, a kind of an unspoken oath, right, of bringing the information to the people. And I really felt committed that I was there, that there was something to be, that we had to get information, right? And the information that we're trying to get was, one, do you know the Keyhole Brothers? What is the affiliation? You are now dragged into this national manhunt for two people that are accused of murdering a family. What, what kind of organization? Is this the kind of organization that is connected to something like that? How do you feel about that? Are you guys a violent group? Those are the things we wanted to understand because you are now in the middle of this sleepy town and I, all the whole nation is now on you. And so uh, we went down and we asked a couple of questions and he answered. And that's the interesting part. In that moment, I was doing exactly what I saw Phil Donahue and the reporters and the people that I grew up watching doing getting someone to tell me something that they probably wouldn't say to somebody else. That was happening in that moment. And it felt incredibly powerful. And so, so he opened up to you. He did. Hmm. He did. He did. He did. For whatever reason, he felt compelled. He wanted to clear his name. He wanted to make sure that people knew that this is a sleepy town. They don't want the feds on them, right? Uh, yeah. We know these guys, but they're not uh, with us. We're not violent unless we kind of have to be, you know, all of these things, right? So that the public would know who they are, what they are, and what the affiliation was, right? Um, and then we went back and we did the story and uh, we got so many calls. We were so upset. They were so upset that they sent me out to that story. They couldn't get past those optics. The same optics mm. that I'm sure that my news director was like drooling over that it was just like going to be like so wonderful. People are going to watch this and be like in awe. And it was the same thing that made everyone very angry because, and they were angry actually for me because I didn't have the level of understanding of knowing just how precarious that situation was yeah. and at what cost. Cause well, they saw their daughter. Ex right. Exactly. Uh, you know. Exactly. You know, Wow. Yep. So was the connection ever established or was, how did that? Yeah. He did know. And this guy, if you read about him now, I'll send you the name later. He, this is the other tricky part. This is why I feel for reporters now. This guy was mentally ill. He had either killed or beat up his mom later. Um, he was sent to prison and uh, he was, the guy was just psychotic. And, but there was a, and he kept denying that there was a true, true relationship as, you know, the Kehoe brothers got caught and they went to prison. Um, but there was a relationship, but no relationship to the end that they had anything to do with the murder of the family out West. Hmm. So how long were you like a reporter before you started anchoring? Anchoring. Um, I'm trying to think. So I was in 1996. I think I started anchoring probably around 99 because that was around the time uh, that I started doing What's Hot. So then I was doing, maybe it was a little before then, maybe 98 because I started doing the morning show and you guys know Pat Barry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. He's been <laughs> on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Friend of the show. Yeah. I love Pat. I love Pat to death and he and I worked the morning show for a while and then I moved to the weekends to anchor the evening show on the weekends and that's when I resurrected what's hot I was doing going to be instead of anchoring five days a week in the morning I was going to be anchoring on the weekends in the evening and reporting three days a week and I knew at that time I could not do three days of crime you know 
I just couldn't do that. And so we had a new news director and I pitched to him, what if we did this like kind of a franchise where we kind of like went out and we talked about the positive stuff that's going on in the community for the cultural arts and things that are coming to town and giving some people things to do. And he was new and he was from L.A. and he was like, yeah, I think that that's a good idea. Why don't you come up with a plan and produce a plan and proposal and come back to me? So then I was talking to a friend of mine who who actually lived in L.A. who used to work at Fox 19, Nick Belperio, who worked as a creative director uh, for uh, Fox Television. So I called him and I said, I need a name for this thing. What can we call it? And he said, okay, so why don't we do what's hop, what's hit, what's happening with Regina? And I was like, oh, no. this is too long, too long. What else can we say? What's hop and what's hip? Oh, no, 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 no. So what's hot? What's hot? What's hot? What's hot with Regina? Bam! That's the name of it. <laughs> so, and then the rest is history. So that just started to morph and develop and morph and develop into a really fun, popular franchise. And I tell you, not a week goes by that I don't walk around that someone in the street that comes up to me and that they say, what's hot, Regina? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you came to uh, Fox 19, that was kind of a, a, a good time to be in the business because a lot of the... Fox stations were ramping up news operations, so in a lot of cities where you used to have just three uh, stations with news, yep. now you had a fourth. Yeah, and so. then we grew exponentially, right? Because we just started with, it started like a year before I got there, a year and a half before I got there, so it was just a half an hour news at 10 o'clock, and then, you know, it turned into an hour, and now we're doing morning, and then we did afternoon, and so now, I mean... Some people can't even remember a time where there wasn't a Fox television station in their market. And when we came on the air, we came on with, we're different, right? So we're young, we're kind of scrappy, we're, we're fun, we're edgy. Well, I don't know if all of them are like that still today, but that really did set us apart. So that must have been a, uh, a pretty exciting gig to be there as opposed to maybe coming to a Channel 5. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. And so new and so fresh and being able to be innovative and creative in the way that we approach news and the way that we told it. It definitely fit my personality. Definitely fit my personality. So did you end up doing a lot of crime reporting? Or did you, was What's Hot able to get you away from a lot of that and other things? Because when Frank Marzullo was here, he was saying he liked weather and, and TV hosting because, you know, there's, you know, news is great and it's fun, but then you think there's sometimes you got to tell people some really bad news and that's, that's just not in his personality. It's not, but the thing that I did still do crime, I did still uh, cover harder to digest stories, but what it enabled me to do was also to filter it, right? Because the longer I was there, I was able to have more influence and say in what we covered and how we covered it. And I remember having hard conversations with producers on why we're showing something, right? Are we showing them something just because we know that this is uh, provocative that will draw eyes to the TV, which of course the answer is yes, you know? (laughs) And so I would always try to come back with a different lens of why like why why do we need to do this like what is the greater good like what is the story that we're really trying to tell um because on the other side of that people are consuming all of that and i started to really feel that i started to really feel that what i had was a talent i love what i do right i love storytelling i love uh, communicating stories to people and translating information for people and so that's, that is a responsibility, and I don't want to spend my whole day 
talking about the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst in the world because what happens when people are fed that steady diet of that, they feel that that is all that there is in the world. It is not. There is more good than there is bad. There is more similar than there is discourse, dissonance, indifference, right? And there, if I could I cut through some of that to give people that, it was really important, which is one of the reasons why I decided at the time, which is right in the middle of a contract, to leave TV because I had two small kids and I knew what was hanging on me when I was coming home every day, right? It was the grime of the world. And I didn't want any part of that. Um, I was doing less of the good and more of what was necessary to get people to tune in. And I just didn't want to participate in that anymore. I didn't want that to be my job. I will tell you that people will say that when I did anchor the news, when you have to deliver hard news, that they appreciated when the news came from me. And everybody has that anchor, that personality, that if something is going down, you'd rather hear it from this person than this person, because this person's going to be able to uh, make you feel that you're st- still going to be okay. Yeah. One of our, uh, one of our designers has a news back- background oh, yeah. really? and he-, he came to us like saying, Hey, you know, I th- I'd really like to work with you guys. Cause you know, you're some positive and upbeat and having fun all the time. Yeah. He's like, I'm tired of there being like a, a school shooting. And then someone's like, okay, now we, we got to brand this. Well, yeah. You know, it's like, we got to come up with this cool little logo that yeah. it's like, wait a second. You know, like you totally get uh, mm-hmm. off kilter from reality or well, I, maybe it's not real, but TV I don't know. It's a business, right? And they have to sell ads and you have to draw people into it. It's even it goes with print too. You have to draw people into it so people can see the advertising. You know yeah. what I mean? And so, um, it's a, a very, it's, there's a responsibility. Like we have to, we, we can't do all great fun stuff all the time. There are things that are happening in this world that you have to just, you're scribed. You just have to tell, but everyone knows the community and the public can recognize when there's not a balance of stories being told. And, uh, when there is a shift to doom and gloom, <laughs> you know, the community can really, uh, pick up on that. And it's just not fair because we paint a picture that everything is just horrible. What the thing that, and the number one thing that bugs me when I watch either local or national news is that they'll do a story that is just horrific and you feel like you need to honor this because this is some, some, this is some stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then in the second later, they're like, and... Now let's see what's happening with the puppies, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, what? What just happened, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, what drives my wife nuts, and we watch a lot of Fox 19, is probably what we mostly watch, but mm-hmm. still, uh, whenever there's a, a big story, and it does, I guess, get branded, and the, it, right where the they have a little, like, 15-second intro, these dark chords, <laughs> Dong, the Pike Tony murderers, dong. And I was like, oh, gee, and that just drives her batty. And that's, I think that's when you've crossed the line, is when you, yeah. Yeah, and the war when there's a story that naturally, I mean, and music plays and elements can play a, a important part in supporting some visual storytelling, right? It does. Um, 
But when there's a heavy handedness of it, like for instance, when you're telling a story of maybe someone who's going through a tragic illness, a terrible terminal illness and the family and then there's children involved. And then you put this music on that's just sad and low and, you know, orchestral strings and all of this and the harp. And you're just like, yeah. you're just like, the, fact. You're, you're, yeah, you're yeah. like the story enough uh, is just sad enough. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. We get it. I don't need you to manipulate and massage this to make me feel some way, right? Like the story in and of itself is enough, right? And and, and should be honored in that way and not produced uh, like a movie. You know yeah. what I mean? So, but yeah. But for the most part, everybody does a, a really great job and they try really hard. Everyone tries really hard to give people the information that they feel that the public really needs to know. So how much of this trope is true of news directors like, oh, dude, we've got to get ratings? I guess there's certain pressure... Especially around, you know, sweeps. This you know, tremendous. February and November are always the times you got the really salacious stories, you know, and, and I think fewer started to know what time it was, you know, yeah. figured it out. So and so I guess my question is, and I guess you're saying that's not entirely uh, the case, but decisions are being made in the interest of news, not so much in the interest of eyeballs. Or what? It depends on the manager, okay. right? It depends on the culture and depends on the news director, but it absolutely... Absolutely. If you feel things are ramped up four or five times of the year, like November and February and maybe May and July, you're absolutely right. Those are key months of, of, of ratings sweeps that they are committed to bringing as many viewers, readers, whatever, to their platform because they have to pay the bills. Right. This isn't a free medium. They have to pay the bills. And so they're trying to step out as being first fast and fresh or whatever. <laughs> we're, whatever we're saying now. Right. Our Doppler is bigger than yours. <laughs> like, what is it now? Now it's accuracy <laughs> with, the, with the weather. Like it, it used to be like our yeah. mornings, are, mornings are big, too. <laughs> yeah. Are yeah, they are. First, yeah. They 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 have to pay. They have to get advertisers, right? They oh, yeah. got to pay the bills. Yeah, live well, at four fifteen now. Yeah. Whatever it is, yeah. <laughs> right? And the, the, the public, Man. for the most part, they get it. They know it. I mean, it is a business. Do you know what I mean? But depending on the management, depending on the station, and depending on the culture, there is a balance to it, right? Some people are a little bit more crazy about it, and there, but there is a balance to it. Oh, yeah. I was like, uh, you know, like you're feeling productive, wake up at 5.30 or 6, get some coffee on, turn on the news, you know, and the local's on. It's like, okay, you listen to it for 10 minutes, and then you kind of zone out and start getting some work done, and it's like, wait, we just did this 10 minutes ago. It's like, it's like <laughs> it's the same show every 15 minutes. Well, probably. that's because they're I mean, not... Everybody's getting ready right, to work. Everyone's, yeah. Especially in the morning, everyone's yeah. getting, you're getting the kids out, whatever, and you have a limited attention span and it kind of, it cycles around. So we're hoping that maybe if you didn't hear it this time, you'll hear it this time. Yeah. And there's a new person getting up and getting ready at this time. So yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're, uh, so it's like, wow, it seems so genuine the first time. Now it's like, ah, you guys just phone. <laughs> I, I could jump on there and do the do the traffic or the weather or whatever. Oh, God. Uh, so did you know what you wanted to do when you left, or you just said, I'm going to leave and I'll figure it out? It's interesting. I, I, I did and I didn't, right? Uh, my uh, two young kids, one was um, like three and a half and, and a year and a half. And I was just really burnt out. 
Like I had been doing this since I graduated from um, college. And so you can imagine, and everybody's different. And I'll admit that I've got girlfriends who are on the air right now that have wonderful families and they're fantastic moms and they can still go through that grind. I just changed and I could not have that stuff hanging on me when I was going home to my kids. I mean, like, like I remember there was a shooting and this guy had shot his girlfriend while she was holding her baby. That was one of the stories I had to cover. I had to go back out to the neighborhood the next day and talk to the family when my son was less than a year old. Right? Yeah. So, exactly. Yuck. Right? Like, not where I want to be, not what I want to do. And I remember when I was supposed to cover that story one day, I dropped my kid off at, um, my son's off at um, daycare. And they were... uh kind of sick. You know how it is when you're like, eh, do I drop them off? No, I think they're well enough. We'll just say, uh, we'll be fine. Right? You're fine. And then I went to work. I got the story. And then I uh, got a call from daycare. You know, little one's sick. You're going to have to come pick him up. He just vomited or something like that. So I'm like, oh, crap. So can't do the story today. I got to take a sick day. I got to go home. And they were literally, they weren't there. Not the same people were there now. Upset that I had to leave. This is one of the, the critical moments for me. And then my husband called. And he says, don't worry, I'll go on. I'll take him. I said, fine. And I went back and I'm like, oh, I can cover the story now. And they're like, oh, good. What a relief. And I sat there so conflicted because I was like, my son is sick. Probably just needs to be held by mom. I just take care of him. It's a baby, right? Instead, today, what I'm doing is I'm going and walking into a neighborhood to talk to a grieving family about their daughter that was just murdered while holding her baby. And it was like one of the beginning of the end for me. Like, that's not how I wanted to spend my day. That's not what I wanted to do. Certainly that story needed to be covered. Her murderer needed to be brought to justice. It just didn't feel like in my bigger calling in life that that was my purpose to do that. I felt like... The there wasn't anybody else I could have sent out, like some... Again. Dumb kid out of college and just looking for... Luck of the draw. Yeah, like. Again, choices, right? Yeah. Are they sending you out because you're uh, capable? Or are you sending you out because this looks good? Do you know what I mean? Uh, the strings, eyeballs. Who's to say? It's psychological torture. Right? Who's to say? <laughs> exactly. And that, and that was a disconnect on their end of not being aware or sensitive. And, and they have no... Uh, responsibility to do any of that. But I have a clear responsibility as someone who has a talent to make sure that my talent is being used effectively. And it was one of the first of many things that just felt like not what I wanted to do, not how I wanted to spend my day, right? And I felt like I still had a big megaphone and I still could use it, just didn't know exactly how. So I started thinking about how do I want to spend my day? I want to tell stories that I think that are interesting, that are edifying. I know it sounds really cliche. I know it does, but that's what I wanted to do. And I loved cultural arts. So I started looking for 
how I could help a cultural art institution in Cincinnati tell their story. And Cincinnati Art Museum had a, a position open and I applied for it and I got it. And so the good thing about that that was so lovely is it opened my eyes to how expansive opportunities are in Cincinnati. Cincinnati is, when you talk about startup, startup is not just those companies, those tech companies that they talk about um with a couple of people, you know, down centrifuge and all of that. Startups could be starting over and reinventing and repositioning and repurposing from a granular level. That's what happened to me. So I worked at uh, the Cincinnati Art Museum and I got to know uh, um, George Vincent. I got to know... Um, Jerry Kathman and Jerry Kathman was the founder of one of the biggest brand companies in the world, LPK. Oh yeah. And George Vincent and uh, Jerry Kathman were on the board of the art museum. And someone was looking at all of the different people that they could hire. I remember Jerry telling me that he and George were like, we should pick Regina. Luckily I had some sweat equity in the city because people knew me. Right. And they knew that I had covered cultural arts because of what's hot. And other people were like, well, she doesn't have a background in PR or whatever. Can she do it? And they literally took a chance on me. And they're like, she has things that you can't teach people, right? She knows what the public wants to hear. She knows how to translate complex messages. And so people could uh, understand it and they feel something. And all that other stuff, she can learn we can teach her. And so I had an awesome board when I worked there and some of the, the greatest minds of the world. And they really took me under their wing and helped me, groomed me, showed me how to do this thing on the other side of telling a story. They're like, you're doing the same thing. You're telling the story, but it's just from the other side. And one of the greatest gifts that Jerry Kathman gave me, he said, you have great instinct, use your instinct, take risks, just do your thing, right? Gave me the freedom. And so when I went to the art museum, it was a little bit of an outlier and I did things differently, right? Like, um, I had us, uh, do partnerships with organizations and nonprofit organizations. I made sure that we saw what we did when we were telling the story and trying to connect our exhibitions to the public. They were looking at through a lens of a multicultural lens and it wasn't just normal, everyday, garden variety folk that would come to the art museum. We want to see African Americans. We want to see Hispanics. We want to see people who have different abilities. We want to see young and we, oh, how do we speak to them? Because I had been a storyteller and speaking to the public through television, right? Because when you do a live shot, when you talk on television every day, you don't know who's watching you. So you have to pick language that everyone's going to feel and be able to understand. And so I did that and it was, it was, incredibly successful time for me. And then I did that for four years and the Cincinnati Contemporary Arts Center, I mean, Contemporary, yeah, Contemporary Arts Center called me and they called me twice. They wanted me to come work for them. Oh, they, they push people for the, the <laughs> How about that, man? I expect that out of task museum, but not yeah, the yeah. Contemporary Arts Center. <laughs> and I went to the Contemporary Arts Center and I learned so much from my team uh, at the Contemporary Arts Center. I have to admit, and I'm just being very honest, this is the other thing about uh, reinventing yourself. When you asked me, did I know what I wanted to do after? I didn't. I was learning and I, as I was going. And while I was learning how to tell the story on the, the other side and connecting it to people, 
by way of public relations, media relations, community engagement. I also had to work with a team of people that I had to manage. I never had to manage anyone before. I worked with scrappy photographers in the pit of a newsroom. We're a different kind of tribe. We have different sense of humor. We talk to each other differently. We're a little hard. So I had to change some of those things. And I was a horrible manager, a horrible manager. I went through three assistants in four years at the Cincinnati Art Museum. I was terrible. And I only was mildly better when I went to the CAC because I just was so in the business of telling the story, getting the story, connecting the story. So in the zone, coming from my TV background, that I didn't take a moment to step back about how do you uh, lead people, team people, make them feel uh, valued, right? Bringing the best out of other people. That was one of my greatest lessons that I learned at the CAC was how to do that and how to be a leader and uh, bring the help people bring the best out of themselves. And it also made me realize at the CAC what I really wanted to do, right? Yeah. And um, it was a beautiful, life-changing experience. And I realized um, after I went through the Cincinnati Chamber We Lead uh, Leadership Program, that I wanted to help a variety of people to tell their story, not just certain entities. I loved that about television news and radio news is that every day was very different. You didn't really know what you were going to do. You didn't know who you were going to talk to, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And uh, what story you were going to connect. And so that's when I found it right now. Communications was a communications consultancy. And I wanted to be able to, take on projects and work with a variety of people, businesses, and organizations to help them tell their story. And that's how I found it right now, communications. And I do that now. That is my full-time gig. I'm now, I'm now an entrepreneur and I absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. So I do primarily public speaking, coaching, media interview training, media relations, strategic communications, and crisis communication. So some PR companies they do the typical kind of PR release. Here's the news reporter. Here's the story. Here's the press conference and all the things that go with that. What I do is I try to give people, organizations and businesses the tools to tell their own story. So if there's a crisis, I go in, we manage the crisis. We take a look at what's happening, what's being said about you, what's out there that isn't true. What's your real, true, untold story that you're trying to elevate to the people? I go in there and help pull that out because sometimes the best story that people have to tell, they're hiding it. They're so close to it. They don't think it's worthy enough or important enough, but through my years of broadcasting, you instinctively are able to pull that out. Get it out. You know, exactly. And know when to elevate it and know when to and who to say it to, right? So I translate their messages for them so that they're able to tell the public. I also do public speaking coaching. There's a lot of executive women I work with, but I also work with leadership teams. And because that is the number one phobia among most people that is speaking in public, whether it's board presentations, you know, in front of someone on television, whatever it is, they have a fear of it. They have anxiety that goes around with that. And I help them manage that and find the language to be able to tell their truth and tell their own story, you know, Um, because I think everybody has a, a beautiful story to tell. 
I do media interview training. I teach them, this is how people are going to come at you as a journalist. These are the questions that they're going to ask. This is how you should respond to it. And then I do some, some community engagement. And those are the things that I, from all my years of working at WQBH and then working in TV and then working in the nonprofit realm with the arts and culture, I bring all of that with me now and be able to really hone in specifically in these particular areas with the organizations and the people that I work with. And I'm going to tell you something. I find it the most fulfilling work like ever. I feel like now is how I felt when I started in the business. Like I'm literally not working. It feels that natural the best. to me. Yeah. <laughs> like I put in 12 hours today, but I didn't work. But I didn't up. work. Exactly. And I feel like, I know, again, I always say it feels cliche, but I feel like it has meaning and it has value. Like if I'm going to be spending time away from my family, and I think everybody should really think about that. If you spend time away from your family, what are you doing? It better have some meaning. It better have some value, right? Because I know firsthand from being a part of so many families' tragedies and trauma, how life turns in an instant. And that was the one thing I was really committed with. I think after all those years in TV, I was like, you know, how do I want to spend my day? Right? I am with all these people. And people don't realize that when you're a reporter and you go onto a scene, you're not just there collecting facts and moving on. You are now part of trauma that has afflicted someone's life you are a part of their story now and that is that stays with you a little bit right and so is that how i want it to continue my day i mean i i didn't want to i didn't want that because it clouded how i was when i was with my family now i feel like i'm pouring something positive into people and yeah. pouring positive into a situation. You're putting out their fires. Yeah, you know, and I feel, <laughs> really, exactly, and I feel, yeah. I, I get energized by that, you know, I do. Yeah. Do you do, uh, like, leadership training? I do. See? Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, and I can really connect because, uh, I mean, Josh and I started this company in 2005. Yeah. And we just, you know, just two dumb kids making t-shirts. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, we got, like, 20 employees and yep. you know, he's the comedian he's traveling all the time. And, uh, so I'm kind of been forced to do the operations and I'm like, ah, I'm still like a dumb kid that went to art school <laughs> and now I got to run this thing. And yep. you know, I, I, I don't have any management skills or what, I'll, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff that's lacking that I'm like, man, I, I wish that I could, I would have had one course at art school to either teach business or either teach, yeah. Some sort of, you know, not, but, you not have, the, but you've got mentors, right? Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah, there's, there's plenty of people to, you know, cry on their shoulders <laughs> every now and then. But, uh, but they also drop some gems on you too, though, right? I mean, you have people who have walked the walk and they've made more mistakes than you will ever make, right? Yeah. And those are the That's people. That's what it comes down to is, yeah, how, what kind of mistakes are you going to make and what can your company absorb <laughs> you know what that's I mean? true because i look at all the mistakes we've made over the years i'm like man we could have if we didn't do this or we didn't do that we would have had this 10 years before we had that yeah and, but like i tell my husband i mean those mistakes are they really mistakes or they're they're, they're moments to learn yeah they're, they're exactly right it's, and that's how you learn you know i mean and i gotta tell my kids this too because we don't want to bring kids up where they never fail Right. They have to. They have to yeah. stumble. They have to fall. They have to make some missteps and mistakes. That is how you learn. And that is necessary. That is so necessary to do that. And it's not a failure. It's learning. It's a learning tool and moment. Right. That makes you bigger and stronger. 
right? All the people who helped me, they had some failures. They had some mistakes. They had some stuff that they learned with. They were able to tell me. Same thing with the things I tell you. That's the greatest thing out of all of this is how I work with people and the, the people that I work with, how I handle them with care and consideration and compassion. Um, and I see them. Like when I was managing before, I was looking at people who managed me and that's how, what I imitated. And I didn't see, actually see the people that I worked with. I don't do that anymore. The last team I worked with at the CAC, I tell you, uh, Josh, Chris, Asa, those are my boys. We're like friends today, right? And um, Lindsay, Aaron, they taught me so much about how to bring the best out of people, which brings the best out of yourself, Right. And so going through those hard, critical moments, those are beautiful moments because they, they really do teach you even the hard stuff. When I was uh, doing those were necessary, covering those hard stories and news, I had to go through that. I had to feel what that felt like to know whether I wanted to participate that with that for the rest of my life. And mm -hmm. also to get a greater understanding that that's not all that life is. Those are not the only stories that are out there. And so now I wasn't being able to tell those stories on TV. I can help people tell their stories on the opposite end. Cool. For sure. Well, so how can, uh, how can people get a hold of you now? Well, they you're can on go. The, you're on the interwebs, I on am the Instagrams, on, yeah. and the Twitters. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am. I am on uh Right Now Communications is on, on Facebook and Twitter and Right Now Com uh, with two R's, R-R-I-G-H-T-N-O-W-C-O-M-M -M is my website. And also my public page, Regina Russo on Facebook. I put a lot of interesting stuff on there about the world um, that I like, a, a kind of a different voice. And What's Hot Regina uh, with Twitter and... Uh, oh, you still doing What's Hot? Well, I still have the name. I still keep the name. So I still use that as a public voice. Also, oh, when you left, you're like, that's mine. I'm taking it. <laughs> I did. I'm I taking did. the stapler. I'm taking this coffee cup. <laughs> and what's hot? <laughs> and I'm out of here. Exactly. Oh, my God. But I use that as a way to a, a public uh, platform to still push out things of beauty and things to consider and provocative things for people to uh, think about in the world. Awesome. But I do, I do a lot of public speaking coaching and a lot of media interview training. And I'll, as of now, a lot of crisis communication. So people can always get me there yeah. through my website. There's always some crisis. There's always yeah. something. People Jeez. need to find the language to get out. For sure. <laughs> well, let's see. So we need a promo code from you. Yep. Uh, at the end of every episode, we ask our guests to give us a word or a small phrase, and that will be used as a promo code on our website. We you know what I'm going to say. You'll be able to save 20% off at Scentsy Shirts. Uh, if you come into our stores and yell it to one of our staff, uh, they'll be able to hook you up uh, or enter it at checkout. Well, it's got to be what's hot. Exactly. What's hot? <laughs> there you go. No, no apostrophe. No. All one word. What's exactly. Hot? Yeah. All one word. All one word. Maybe 20% off. Enter in a checkout, and you're hooked up. All right. Awesome. Well, Regina, thanks for coming in. Tell us your story. Thanks, you guys, for having me. I'm really thrilled. I appreciate this, this so yeah, much. This, we, we learned a lot. This was a lot of fun. Thank like you. <laughs>
Regina Carswell Russo. She's at a light, isn't she? Maybe we'll see her back on TV or some streaming platform one of these days uh, doing some kind of version of What's Hot. And if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, just drop us an email, podcast at cincyshirts.com, and put podcast guest in the subject line. Maybe include a, a few sentences of why you think they'd be a great guest, and uh, we'll try to track them down for you and get them on the show. You can use that same email address, by the way, to donate to the podcast via PayPal or Venmo. Be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area but still feel connected to the tri-state. And if you haven't already... And as always, go back and plunder the Cincy Shirts podcast archives. There's 95 of them back there now, if you haven't listened to all of them. And, uh, boy, not a dud in the lot, I would say. Uh, they're all good, uh, all kinds of uh, interesting things from all kinds of interesting people from uh, all kinds of professions and walks of life. You'll dig all of them, I guarantee it. So today's show is produced by me, with all from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. You can find all of their music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Now, find vintage t-shirts from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. Lots of defunct sports teams, old radio stations, restaurants, things like that. Like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns. And again, the promo code for this episode is What's Hot. It's all one word, uh, no apostrophe in there. It's all uppercase, all lowercase, whatever way you want to do that, that's fine. And uh, yeah, you can do that. There's no dash in there or anything like that. What's Hot. Use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. You can also use that code in our physical or brick-and-mortar stores, as we say, in Over the Rhine, Hyde Park, and Loveland. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye. Hey!